Hi, good morning, church. One of the methods to separate people into groups is to select team leaders and letting them pick their teammates from the rest of the participants one by one. I first encountered this in secondary school when my PE teacher was organizing the girls in my class to play basketball. I found it a most unpleasant experience. Because as teenage girls, we were already painfully self-conscious. And here our teacher wants us to size each other up, evaluate one another. At first it was straightforward because they just chose the sporty ones to be on their teams. But then comes the tricky part. How to differentiate between the rest of us? Every time someone else is chosen, I'm left thinking, why is she selected before me? Is it because she's taller, skinnier, more muscular? Or is it because she's prettier, smarter, or simply more fun? Whatever it is, while the leaders and teammates deliberate over their next choice, the rest of us stood there questioning ourselves. That morning, the last few girls to be picked had our fragile self-esteem wounded. There are many situations in life which can test a person's self-esteem. For example, how do we feel about ourselves when we're not invited to a party? Don't know, never mind, I find already. Uh. <sighs> or when we're isolated at lunchtime, your stomach is grumbling, you stand up to jeer your colleagues for lunch just to realize everybody left already. Or it could be as simple as nobody replying to your messages in a group chat. Happens a lot in our CG group chats, doesn't it? It's not only teenagers who struggle with such situations. Many adults never reach a stage where they can think well of themselves. Instead, they tend to think negatively. I'm not fun enough. I'm not capable enough. I'm not valuable enough. Nobody likes me. What do we do when we do not have a healthy self-esteem? How can we live our lives without feeling worthless or unwanted from time to time? May I suggest to you that we can all develop a godly self-esteem if we build our identity on how God thinks about us. The message I have for us today is, think well of yourselves because Jesus thinks well of you. Our passage today contains a pair of parables. Jesus told them in response to the Pharisees and scribes who were grumbling against him. Before we go into the parables, let us study the context. Verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Luke emphasizes the fact that it was the tax collectors and sinners of all people who were the ones approaching Jesus. Now, these Jewish traitors and unclean ones were avoided by their own people, and they probably avoided their people themselves. But here, they took courage to draw near to Jesus, sinners approaching a holy man. It must have been a curious sight, like watching houseflies being drawn to a flower. But these sinners had the courage to come forward because they know that Jesus will not shoo them away. Instead, Jesus receives them and eats with them. He is welcoming to them. He spends time with them, educates them, answers their questions, even shares a meal, in spite of their poor moral and religious standing. 
But the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I suppose they made this remark because they were experiencing cognitive dissonance. They have a feeling that Jesus is a holy man, but his behavior goes against religious norms. Just as house flies have nothing to do with flowers, so also a holy man should have nothing to do with sinners. But Jesus crosses the boundaries between holiness and uncleanness. This makes the Pharisees and scribes very uncomfortable. Their cognitive dissonance could be resolved in the following ways. Either the Pharisees must rationalize that these people are not sinful, and therefore Jesus is not wrong to receive them. Or they must rationalize that Jesus is not a holy man, and therefore he can eat with them. Of course, neither option explains the fact. There is an alternative way of looking at this situation. It involves a belief that the Pharisees were too narrow-minded to consider. This belief is implied in verse 7 and repeated in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The belief is, the sinner can repent. Jesus believes that sinners can turn away from their sins. Yes, tax collectors are sinful and sinners are unclean, but they don't have to remain this way forever. While the Pharisees were so fixated on their present sinfulness that they rejected these people, Jesus saw their potential to repent and he welcomes them. Jesus' belief that sinners can repent underlies his replies to grumbling Pharisees on two other occasions. First, in Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, would Jesus have come all the way from heaven to earth if he didn't believe that sinners can repent? And again in Luke chapter 19. And when they saw that Jesus had gone to stay at the house of Zacchaeus, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Again, would Jesus have come to die on the cross if he didn't think that lost humanity can be saved? The belief that sinners can repent and be saved, that houseflies can become butterflies, this is the reason why Jesus associates with sinners. If the church can think this way too, then we'll be motivated to open our doors to welcome non-believing people. When someone believes in you, you begin to think well of yourself. Anthony here is a quiet young man who is good with computers and wanted to make a career in computer engineering like his father. However, he couldn't find a job in the industry even after a hundred job applications. Disappointed and in need of income, Anthony joined Amazon.com as a temporary worker working in, in a warehouse shelving goods. Now, mind you, this is a degree holder working a temp job. 
Nevertheless, Anthony did his job faithfully, and he called the attentions of his warehouse managers, and they offered him a full-time job as an Amazon associate. And this is when Courtney, the lady in the picture, became his manager. Observing Anthony to be a humble person who is open to learning, Courtney believed that he had real potential. Hence, she assigned him to duties which required him to step out of his comfort zone and supervise over 40 staff. She was taking a huge risk putting so many people under him, but Courtney believed that Anthony could do it. And sure enough, Anthony rose to the occasion, and he discovered after interacting with co-workers from different cultures that he's curious about people, even though he's an introvert. He enjoys talking to them and learning about them. With this newfound confidence in himself, Anthony went back to school and earned a second degree in information technology. He eventually became an IT support engineer with Amazon. Failures, disappointment and self-doubt had stopped Anthony from realising his full potential. But when Courtney showed that she believes in him, Anthony dreamed a new dream and got his life back on track. Don't we all need someone to believe in us? Someone who believes we won't remain just as we are forever. Someone who believes we can turn our lives around. The good news is, you and I have someone. Jesus believes in us. Jesus believes that you and I can turn away from our sinfulness and live righteously. Jesus believes that you and I can turn away from worldly standards of beauty, success and popularity to overcome our body image concerns and our self-esteem issues. Jesus believes that even when you and I fail from time to time, feel bad about ourselves, we can rise up from our failures to start afresh. And he not only believes, Jesus also brings about that change in us. Because in him is the power of the resurrection, the power that brings dead things back to life, the power that renews, regenerates, revitalizes. You and I may not like parts or all of who we are, how we look and what we do, but we will not remain this way forever. The resurrection power of Christ makes us increasingly perfect, increasingly righteous, increasingly holy. And Jesus, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion. Because he believes in us, because he changes us, we can think well of ourselves. Now let us turn to our parables. If parables reveal a truth about the kingdom of God, then this pair reveals the truth about the God of the kingdom, specifically how he loves us and thinks about us, as we shall see. Now Luke has put these two parables together because of their similarities and differences. Both parables are about losing things and the joy of finding them. But one is about a rich man, while the other is about a poor woman. Thus, while both bring the same message, they say it differently, enriching our understanding. First, the parable of the lost sheep, which is about a man who has a hundred sheep. 
One sheep, according to source, uh, is worth 400 silver coins in those days. If one silver coin is roughly one day's wages, then selling one sheep can support a person for a year. 100 sheep means 100 years, as pastor says, This was a rich man. Since he had so much wealth, losing one sheep probably isn't too much of a big deal for him. He could have you know, left it in the open country. However, he goes after that sheep. And he was going to go after it until he finds it. That is to say, he doesn't stop searching for it. He doesn't give up. He will go all the way in pursuit of it, no matter how long it takes, no matter how far he needs to go. This is his determination. And the parable continues. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now this part of the parable is quite extraordinary. I don't have pets, but based on my interactions with pet owners, I know that they will show some form of displeasure when their pets misbehave. For example, if a dog barks too much or pesters a guest for food and salivates all over the floor, the owner will rebuke them or at least show them an angry face. I'm not sure if you do that with cats. No, cat owners? Yes. Kenneth says yes. Yet the rich man was not angry with the lost sheep, which caused him so much trouble to find. There was no rebuke, only rejoicing. And this is quite extraordinary. It appears that the joy of finding what he lost overpowered any anger or distress. Now here's a very unscientific chart to illustrate the change in his emotions. If owning a sheep made him feel joy at level one, and losing a sheep made him feel joy minus one, then the lost sheep that is found will cause a two-point increase in level of joy. Can you see that? It's not my idea. Some Bible commentary says this. That's why uh, there is greater joy over the lost sheep that is found than the ones that don't need to be found. Yeah, so yeah, think, about, think about this. And his level of joy was so overwhelming, he needed to share it. As if he would explode into unicorns and rainbows if he didn't tell somebody. And tell one person, not enough. Must gather all friends and family. Uh, tell his father, mother, brother, sister, uncle, auntie, Tom, Dick, Harry, Abing, Alien, Ahui, Asing. Anyone I miss out? Of course, tell your pastor also. Uh, in this day and age, of course, uh, you can just post on IG and all your 359 followers will know. You need to tell everybody because so happy. The point is he was overjoyed. He is beyond happy. He is extravagantly delighted to have found his lost sheep. What does this parable reveal about God? If the rich man represents God, then every human being is a lost sheep. After the fall of Adam and Eve, we were blinded by sin and unable to find our way back to God. That's why we are lost. Jesus tells this parable to express God's desire for every sinner to repent and his delight over every repentant sinner. God is saying, I will go all the way. No matter how much time it takes, no matter how far I need to go, I will go all the way to search for you and bring you home. And when I find you, we're going to have a big celebration. 
I'm not going to scold you. We're going to have a big celebration. Has God really gone out of his way to bring humanity home? He has. And the New Testament records a few people that Jesus went out of the way to find and save. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus was only passing through Jericho. But when he saw Zacchaeus on the sycamore tree, he decided to stay with him so that he can bring salvation to his household. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus deliberately endured a storm on the sea so that he could go to the Gerasenes to free a man who is possessed by a legion of demons. In John chapter 4, Jesus purposely passed through Samaria so that he could speak forgiveness over the woman who has five husbands. And in our second reading today, we are reminded that Jesus appeared to Paul. He ascended already, but he came down and appeared to Paul so that he could turn this blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent into his mighty apostle. Though Jesus is no longer physically on earth, God's pursuit of sinners continues today through his church. If we reflect on our own journey of faith, we can identify Christians that God sent out to reach us, can't we? Could have been the principal, teachers, and classmates at your Christian school? Your colleagues who invited you to a church wedding or a special service? Or the Christians who came knocking on your door? or just your family members who have converted before you. Whoever it is, it was no coincidence that they found you, because God was actively searching for you through them. And Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous ones who need no repentance. That is to say, if you think the rich man was over the top with his rejoicing, God's reaction to your repentance is even more extravagant. If the rich man's joy was two points, God's is 100 points and beyond. God is indescribably happy when you come home to him. And this is in spite of the fact that God has already retrieved many lost sheep before you. Prominent sheep like Enoch, Abraham, Moses, Elijah. God already has many righteous ones with him. Yet he is still indescribably happy when you repent and come back to him. This suggests to me that God thinks about you and me in this way. Though I have many in the kingdom of heaven, I want you with me. Though I have many in the kingdom of heaven, I want you with me. This is God's confession of his love for us. There are people listening to this sermon who are feeling insignificant in life. You feel very small in this big, big world with many, many people. You think you're nothing special compared to the beautiful and talented people in church, in office, in school. You don't stand out. You don't belong. You suspect nobody will notice if you go missing. Perhaps you were abandoned by people before. Don't know your story, but today you feel tiny, 
unimportant, invisible. Through the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus is saying to you, I can see you coming and going in the crowds. I know who you are, and you are unique to me. I'm watching you everywhere all the time. I'm not going to leave you alone. You belong with me. Therefore, think well of yourselves, brothers and sisters. You are important. You are special. You are loved because Jesus wants you in his kingdom. Now turning to the parable of the lost coin. This one is about a woman who has 10 silver coins. Compared to the man with a flock worth 40,000 silver coins, this woman is poor. Since she has only so few coins, losing one coin was a big deal for her. Hence, she turns on the lights, sweeps every inch of the floor, searching carefully. Like the rich man, the poor woman was determined to search for her coin until she finds it. She doesn't stop searching, she doesn't give up. She will comb the floor over and over again until she sees it. The time she spends, the effort she expends bending over, even crawling on the floor, all these are nothing compared to the distress of not having the coin in her possession. For this reason, the rich man, like the, uh, like the rich man, the poor woman experiences the same extravagant delight when she finally finds it. So what does this parable reveal about God? If the poor woman represents God, then every human being is a lost coin. Jesus tells this parable to express God's desire for every sinner to repent and his delight over every repentant sinner. It's the same message as the previous one. But repetition means emphasis. God desires every sinner to repent and delights over every repentant sinner. But the parable of the coin also tells us something different about how God thinks about us. Through this parable, God is saying, there are only so few in the kingdom of heaven. I cannot bear to be without you. There are only so few in the kingdom of heaven. I cannot bear to be without you. Is it true that God doesn't have many people in the kingdom of heaven? Someone got checked with him before. Someone said, really someone, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So few people will be saved. For this reason, God is indescribably happy when you repent and come home. For this reason, God cannot bear to be without you. There was one day I found a little boy sulking on a staircase. When I asked him what's wrong, he said, I think God made a mistake. I'm the worst person he has ever created. Later, I found out that he hated himself for always scolding his younger brother for messing up their bedroom. Looking at a nine-year-old boy, thinking negative thoughts about himself, I was heartbroken. Didn't know what to say. Recall this incident when I was reflecting on our parables. Now that I know how God thinks about us, 
I would tell that boy, you know, the Bible says God loves us so much that he cannot bear to be without any one of us, including the worst person he has ever created. Allow me to conclude. God created every person good in his eyes, but sin entered the world and corrupted humankind. Not only do we hate our neighbours, we also hate ourselves. Living as sinners in the fallen world of sinners can really tear us down and make us feel worthless and unwanted. Today, the Word of God reminds us that Jesus loves every single one of us, regardless of how we think and feel about ourselves. Jesus thinks well of us, regardless of how other people think and feel about us. He believes that we can repent and be restored to goodness. He wants us with him in eternity. He cannot bear to be without us. Everyone is precious to him. For this reason, we should think well of ourselves, and we can build our self-esteem on these loving thoughts that God thinks about you and me. It may be hard to believe, especially when you're not going to change overnight, and the world isn't going to be kinder to you after you walk out that door. But brothers and sisters, encourage yourselves with this. Jesus selected you for his kingdom. There was indescribable joy over you on the day you turned to Christ. There is daily rejoicing over you now that you are righteous in Christ. The heavens are celebrating you all the time. The angels are cheering you on wherever you go. So whenever you feel down, lift up your heads and look into the heavens. Remember this heavenly reality. And think well of yourselves. Thank you.